God's Word in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with them. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that all who hear this word, hear these words, would know that they will one day be with you in paradise. Be with you because of what Jesus did. In his name we pray. Amen. Learning how to respond is a major facet of life. From an early age, we're always teaching our children how they should respond to certain things. When they're given a gift, we tell them, tell them thank you. When an adult talks to them, we say, look at the adult in the eyes and answer them clearly. When someone enters a room, we tell them you need to acknowledge their presence. And yet, this can be even harder when you become an adult and then you move from culture to culture. Over the last few years, we've had various missionaries come into our church and they've told us various things that are challenging about their culture. For example, the Flinks from Chile have told us that when they were having the church in their house, they would often have a meal afterwards. And when anyone left, they were expected to go and tell every single person individually goodbye. To not tell every person goodbye was insulting. So you better plan. If you want to leave at 3.30, about 2.45, you start saying your goodbyes. It's going to take a while. Or the Smiths, who now serve in missionary, before that they lived in Spain. And when they lived in Spain, if they invited someone over for lunch, they would normally stay until about 10 o'clock in the evening. Because in Spanish culture in Spain, that's what you do. You stay at their house. They invited you over. Now that might be audacious, but in different cultures, people act differently. And some people have drawn an implication, a conclusion from this one with which I disagree. They say, well, look, so what this is showing us is there's really no 
right or wrong. It's all kind of culturally situated. So you can't really say this is right, this is wrong. That's wrong for your culture, or that's right for their culture. And while there's an element of truth in that, yes, there are many aspects of life that are culturally determined. Yet, we cannot say nothing is ever right or wrong. Because God has made our all cultures, even ours. And so if he says this is an inappropriate response, then we must humbly and firmly say no. That's wrong no matter what culture you're in. Sure, those responses will still be shaped. They'll be tinged by your culture. So in one culture, what does weeping look like looks different than another. But God, the Lord of all cultures, has spoken. We've been studying Luke's gospel, and last week we came to what I argued was the pinnacle, not just of Luke's gospel, but of the Bible, the continental divide from which all other biblical truths flow, Christ and his cross. And so now the question is, well, how do we respond to it? Well, in one answer, well, we'd have to start in Genesis 1 and go to Revelation. The whole Bible is showing us how to respond. But Luke this morning shows us three ways to respond. Each one of these stories, though there are elements of them in other Gospels, each one of these stories is unique to Luke's Gospel. What is recorded is not shared in the other Gospels. And so Luke is specifically showing Theophilus, who he wrote this to, and us, how do we respond to Jesus' death? And the first one is a little shocking. We're told, do not weep for Jesus. Second, Luke shows us that we should marvel at Jesus' forgiveness. And third, we should repent of sin and believe in him. But first, Luke is showing us that we do not, we should not weep for Jesus. Jesus is now being led from Pilate. He's offered the sentence of condemnation and he's going And we're not told exactly why, but probably due to the beatings, due to the scourgings, he can't carry the cross. And so as he stumbles and falls, most likely they conscript a man, Simon, and say, you're going to carry the cross. The Roman soldiers would be too proud to carry a cross. And so by spear point, by sword, Simon now is given this task. And Luke adds that there's these people, there's this multitude of people, there's these women coming behind Jesus and weeping. But Jesus, though, now turns. And he looks at these women and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. Jesus' words here challenge the way many people perceive of Jesus. Many people think of Jesus kind of like this illustration. Imagine your child gets motivated for something and they want to raise money for this cause. And so they realize, hey, if I sell these candy bars, I can raise money. So every night, After school, they start going door to door. On the weekends, they're going to the grocery stores, waiting outside. And after three weeks, they have $20. They wanted at least $200, and they only have $20. And what do you go, oh, it's such a shame. They had this big goal. They were doing good stuff, and they didn't really accomplish very much. It's so sad. A lot of people think of Jesus as a poor candy salesman. Oh, poor Jesus. He had all these ambitions. He had all these dreams, and now... I just picture him hanging on that cross. Oh, so sad. And Jesus is saying, look, don't don't weep for me. I don't need your sympathy. You should not think of me that way. Greg Morse writes, speaking kind of for Jesus, weep not for me, for I am not a helpless victim. I am a warrior king with thousands of angels at my beck and call. One word from me in this horror would end. 
One word from me and Rome would be destroyed. One word from me and all would be eternally condemned. But I was sent to save the world, not condemn it. Don't weep for me, for I am conquering. You see my heel being bruised and you mourn, but look through the eyes of faith and see the serpent's skull crushed. Weep not for me, for Sunday is coming. I've repeatedly told you that in three days I'll rise again. Although today is full of unutterable darkness, unimaginable pain, unthinkable terror, Sunday is coming. My Father's perfect hand is crushing me. Evil men are murdering me. My disciples have fled from me, but truly I tell you, Sunday is coming. Joy is set before me and empowers me to endure. A crown awaits me. Endless glory, celebration awaits me. My blood-bought people await for me. My Father awaits for me. Don't weep for me. You know, Jesus does not need our condescending sympathy. If your picture of Jesus is one still hanging on a cross, emaciated and looking as though he's defeated, you don't have the full picture. Jesus was on a cross. But now and for eternity, he is reigning in heaven. So don't weep for him. Now don't be mistaken, Jesus is not saying don't weep. He actually then says, you should weep. He tells daughters of Jerusalem, you should weep for yourselves. And he explains, because he said, there will come a day when they will say, blessed are the barren, the womb that did not bear and those who did not nurse. Now to fully grasp this, we have to realize that the height of shame for a Jewish woman was to not bear a child. And yet now Jesus is reversing that picture. That's why Elizabeth, when she gave birth to John the Baptist, said, my reproach has been taken away. And yet Jesus says, days are coming when it will be better to not have children. He tells them that people will hate those days so much that they will want to die. May the mountains and the hills fall upon us. Well, these are not weird or idle words. Jesus is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to come. When in just four decades, the Roman army did come. They surrounded Jerusalem, and then they breached it, conquered it, filled it with wood, and burned it to the ground. Where the historian Josephus tells us over a million Jews were killed and 100,000 taken into captivity. And that was a picture for all time that God's judgment will come. So we should weep too. Thus again, Jesus is calling us to weep, but weep for the right thing. Again, Greg Morse writes, weep for your sins. Gentle daughters, useless are the tears that fall on my behalf because of suffering, but never fall because of sin. Many weep over my suffering, but not the sin which caused it. The horror you see before you is becoming my becoming sin for my people and bearing the wrath they deserve, that they should have my righteousness. If you weep, it's better to weep over the lust that hammers the nail deeper, the lie that sticks a thorn in the brow, the cowardly duck that makes a gash upon me, the prideful strut that keeps me upon Calvary's path. You know, that reality is we're often upset at the wrong things and uncaring about what we should weep about and jesus is making clear that it is improper to weep 
in response to his death. Yes, on one level, it is sad. It is tragic. We aren't denying that. However, Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him. He did it not to earn our sympathy, but to get our salvation. And he is now on his throne. So when we look out and we see our society fleeing from Christ, we shouldn't weep for Christ. Oh, we should weep for our society. When we hear people scorn God's word, we shouldn't weep for Jesus going, oh, isn't it sad that people aren't listening to him? We should weep for those who scorn his word. His words of love and warning because they will have a fearful future if they will not respond. Whereas Jesus' future is one of eternal joy and glory. There's a really incredibly amazing aspect of what Jesus did. You remember, he is on his way to the cross. He is so physically exhausted, couldn't carry his cross, and probably is still stumbling just to get up the hill. And yet in that moment, he doesn't just think, this is going to be bad for me. He is still showing love and compassion for others. And so he stops and he turned to talk to these women because he loves them and he cares for them. You know, this man leaves us marveling at who he was, what he taught, how he acted. And we see that specifically in what he does next in his forgiveness. The second thing, Luke calls us to marvel at his forgiveness, verses 32 through 38. And we're told that the Romans also had two other criminals that they crucified on Jesus' right and left. And we are so far removed from the punishment of crucifixion that we have a hard time grasping the horror of it. We decorate our houses with it. We put it on as nice jewelry to make ourselves look nicer. And yet, no one in their society would have ever done that. You know, they had other forms of punishment, even capital punishment. But this was saved for the worst of criminals. And no Roman citizen would be, ever be expected to endure this, except on the very worst of crimes. The Roman Cicero wrote, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And yet, they're willing to crucify the one who made every Roman citizen. The one who is king of kings and lord of lords. Crucifixions were so horrible that people in polite company would never talk about them. And on top of all this, Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The crucifixion began when they would flog the guilty, and then they would lead them, and they would affix their body to a T-shaped cross. They would strip them, perhaps leaving a loincloth, we're not sure. But then they would affix them with either nails in their hands and feet or ropes. And then they would hang. You just imagine hanging outside in the Texas sun. The dehydration. The sunburn. The agony. The flies landing on you and you can do nothing about it. And Jesus is going through this. Why? Well, Herod could find no guilt. Pilate three times said he was innocent. 
Yet Jesus endured this punishment as though he was any other criminal, for he was numbered with the transgressors. And so the Roman soldiers carry this out. They treat Jesus just like any other man. Yet Jesus shows he's not just any ordinary criminal. And these events are so important that even secular and Jewish history have recorded it. About 150 years later, after this event, a Syrian Stoic philosopher named Mara Bar Serapion, he records that Jesus was killed. Why would he, from Syria, record this? The historian Josephus records that Pilate had Jesus crucified. Even the Roman historian and senator Tacitus writes that the Christians came into being from Christ, who was condemned by Pontius Pilate. History, not just the Bible, though the Bible clearly teaches it too, but history clearly demonstrates that there was a man who lived, who was from Nazareth, who was named Jesus, and he was killed by Pontius Pilate. Well, why? Who was this man? How should we respond? Well, part of that is knowing how this man responded himself on this cross because he then responded in verse 34 to all this. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Roman soldiers who had this duty probably had heard lots of rough talk in their day. They'd probably heard threats. They probably heard curses, cries of agony, sobs of pain, all types of words. Probably most days they went home like most men and their wife said, how was work today? Eh, another six people. Heard all the usual stuff. No big deal. But I guarantee on this day they did not go home and go, yep, just another ordinary day. They would have gone home and said, you know what? I heard something I've never heard before. I can't believe this man said it. In the midst of everything going on, and in fact, a crowd showing up just to mock him, he cried out to his father and asked to forgive them. It was so bizarre. I've never seen anything like that before. Rico Tice asked, Who is this man who, having been unjustly tried, been deserted by his friends, having been despised and rejected by his own people, having been spat upon and flogged and scourged, having had his head crowned with thorns and then nailed to a Roman cross. Who is this man who still cries out to his father, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Jesus is no ordinary man. And no normal man would have acted this way. And yet Jesus' words are in fact the very thing he commanded us to do. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 6, 27-28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus, more than any other person will ever completely understand. Jesus knew the cost to actually say those words. He knew the physical cost. The way that crucified people normally died was asphyxiation. Over time, as their body would start to hang, their lungs would begin to fill with fluid, and they had to push up either on that nail or on the rope on their feet that would be chafed and burning against their skin, and they'd have to breathe. Every word, every breath cost them. And Jesus physically lifts himself out and probably in agony. 
with tears of agony and sorrow and compassion, says, Father, forgive them. However, it wasn't just a physical cost. Jesus knew the spiritual cost. He knew that for him to say, Father, forgive them, meant that he had to stay on that very cross for which he was forgiving them. They can only have forgiveness because he is about to be forsaken by the Father. They can only be blessed because he allows himself to continue to be cursed. How utterly unnatural this is. Because the natural response when someone gets me is, I'm going to get you back harder. It's not to love my enemies, it's to hate them. It's definitely not to bless those who curse me, but to curse them. And even in the midst of Jesus calling for forgiveness, they continue to heap insult and scorn. The religious leaders jeer, he saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ, the chosen one. The soldiers, they join in the mocking, they bring some sour wine, and they tell well, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And yet Jesus' words and actions of love shine brightly. For as that person keeps poking you, you're not going to do anything. Keep kicking the back of your chair in class. All of a sudden, what do you do? Ah, you think I'm not going to do anything? I'll show you I'll do something. And we erupt. And yet Jesus patiently, lovingly, sacrificially, endures and not just endures he cries for them to be forgiven for what he has to endure and then those who have tasted this forgiveness they then have the power to share that same kind of radical forgiveness and love to others you've probably heard of richard wormbrand he lived in romania in the 1940s and during that time the communist russia came and overtook the country His faithfulness to the gospel led to him being in prison for 13 years. And in that time, he and other Christians took beatings, solitary confinement, and meager rations. And in his book, Tortured for Christ, he tells of how at that time, communist torturers were sometimes then too put in the prison. Now the tortured and the former torturer are side by side in the same cells. And Wormbram writes, while the non-Christians showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense, even at the risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with communism. I have seen Christians giving away their last slice of bread and medicine which could save their lives to a sick communist torturer who was now a fellow prisoner. Well, how in the world could they ever do this? Because they realized they had been God's enemies, and he loved them, and now they get to be a picture, hands and feet, of showing that same love. Or you may be even more familiar with the story of Jim Elliott and the other missionaries who went down to Ecuador to reach out to the Aka tribe, the Aka natives. And They methodically tried to build a relationship with them to create a sense of harmony and peace because the Akas were the most feared tribe for they were known for being murderous. And after some time when they thought they'd developed a relationship, they made a plan and prayerfully and cautiously decided we're going to make physical contact. And so they landed and then within a day they were all speared to death 
how do we normally respond? Well, send in the troops. They need to be punished for what they've done. And yet two of the widows of these men continued to reach out to the Aka Indians. Two of them eventually were allowed to move into the tribes and due to their love, love for the very people who killed their husbands, led many to Christ. However, that's not the whole story. There's another twist to it that Rico Tice tells about because years later, anthropologists made a documentary and the documentary basically shows, well, actually, the Akas were much better before the missionaries came. And so some people came and asked Elizabeth Elliot, they said, why in the world did y'all go and interact with them? They lived much better lives before y'all ever came. And Elizabeth graciously responded. She said, they maybe had happier lives, but they did not die happier deaths. If you have ever heard the Aka death cry, the death wail, you would never ask such a question like that. You know, such grace extending from this woman who husband gave her life to reach these people, who gave many years of her own life and then be challenged as though she was unloving. And she doesn't blow up at the insensitive question. It was showing that they went to give hope to those who had none at the one thing we're all going to face, death. And how we die shows really who we are and what we truly believe. And here, Jesus' death showed one man, one of the criminals on the cross, that Jesus was no ordinary man. And that man received the forgiveness of which Jesus spoke. Jesus' cry for forgiveness, it doesn't get applied to everyone. Rather, we must come to do as one of the crucified men did, and that is to repent of our sin and believe in him. The third thing Luke shows us in verses 39 through 43, how do we respond to Jesus? We don't weep for him. We marvel at his love shown in his forgiveness, and we should repent of sin and believe, of, believe in him. Verse 39 says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now we know from the other Gospels that at one point, both of the criminals were saying this. They were both mocking Jesus, and yet at some point, one of them had his mind changed. Now, what caused it to happen? Now, we're not told, but I think we can look at some of the things and say they surely played a major part. Surely, him hearing Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them, made him realize this man is different. Surely as he thought about, what is this charge over him, the king of the Jews? I remember hearing this week of a man who came into Jerusalem on a donkey. He didn't come in with soldiers. And yet all the people were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. And yeah, I remember my parents telling me of a future king who would come, who would conquer, who would reign. And could it be him? And I, I remember the, you know, the reports were all over our area of this man who healed people, who cast out demons, who even brought the dead back to life. So many people told me this. Could he actually do that now? And did he go, you know what? He could save himself, but he's hanging there because he wants to save me. He wants to save you. Now again, we don't ultimately know, but surely these thoughts are swirling through his mind. 
And thus, when the other criminal again blasphemes, calling on Christ to save himself, he rebukes him. He says, do you not fear God? For you're in the same condemnation. He continues, look, we were wrong. We justly deserve what we're getting, but this man didn't do anything wrong. And then he turns from talking to the criminal and he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognizes that Jesus is the king and that his kingdom will come. Jesus responds, verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now notice some things Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, open your eyes, man. I'm done. My mission is finished. I'm right here with you. I can't do anything. Jesus didn't say, you're crazy. You're out of here. What are you talking about? Save you. I'm just another dude hanging here with you. Jesus responded, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise today jesus responds immediately to this man jesus knows that while he may not save himself from the cross this is not the end jesus is already looking forward to paradise in fact he is looking forward to the completion the fulfillment of what all of this is going to be when he is in his kingdom and that kingdom is one in which there is forgiveness of sins Forgiveness of sins that occur due to what he's doing at this moment. And so he says, you will be with me. He's showing what forgiveness of sins does. It restores us to God. You know, here this man, this criminal, this thief on the cross is really showing us three important things about what it means to interact with God, to have forgiveness. First, He has a clear admission of guilt without any ifs, ands, or buts. In verse 41, he declared, look, we're suffering this due to the crimes we committed. He didn't say, well, I'm up here because I had some really bad parents. Yeah, I was leading a pretty good life, but then I fell in with a bad crowd, and if it wasn't for them, then I wouldn't be up here. Or you don't understand, life got really hard, and there was no other choice. He says, I was guilty. I was wrong. And so he says he shows his guilt. And we have a hard time with that. We have a hard time saying, I am sorry. I was wrong. Stop. Period. No more words. No ifs, ands, buts, maybes. If you hadn't, but if I had. You know, there's no comparing Yes, I'm on this cross, but you don't understand what all the other good things I've done that kind of cause this not to be that big a deal. This man begins where every true Christian begins is the the humble acknowledgement that I am a sinner. I am rebelling against God, and I deserve my punishment. Second, though, he doesn't stop there because he truly knows and trusts God who Jesus is. What's interesting here, these three stories, these three pictures that Luke gives us, they're showing us that Jesus is not just a Jewish Messiah and a Jewish king, though he is that. 
He is the Messiah for all. He is King of the universe before whom we all must bow and through whom we all can only find forgiveness. That is why he can tell the women, do not weep. You know, what brought this up earlier. What if the women said, but Jesus, you don't understand. That's how our culture responds. You know, Jesus can speak into any and every culture because he made any and every culture. Every culture ultimately must submit to him. I think it's important because many times we'll hear from our friends and relatives, look, you're so insensitive. You shouldn't be witnessing to others, telling them to convert, telling them to change. You're trying to make them like you. There are many things we could say to this, but one of them is, yes, you are correct if Jesus is just another man. If Christianity is just people's later reflections on who they thought Jesus was, then yes, then that would show that Jesus was a crazy egomaniac going around telling people that he's the Lord of the universe and they should listen to him even on their emotions. Yet, once again, it is clearly being shown Jesus never claimed to be an ordinary man. And not only his life, but now in his death, we clearly see demonstrated that he was no ordinary man. Next time we look at this, we'll see that the Roman centurion who oversees this will even say, truly this was the Son of God. It is clear that Jesus is not any normal person. And since he's not, there is a level of allegiance. We must marvel at his compassion, his love, his teaching. You know, there's no sign of him being an egomaniac. Rather, there's a sign of him giving his life. He's not trying to get us to serve him so he can rule over us selfishly. He's giving his life so that we might have the life we were intended to have, the life that comes for all who repent and believe. And that's what this man is seeing. He repented of his sins and he realized who Jesus is. I mean, what faith it must have taken to look over and see Jesus on a cross and say, remember me in your kingdom. He was seeing nails. He was seeing bloodied back. And yet he realized with faith, there's more than I can see right now. And the third amazing thing that we see from this interaction is Jesus' response that today you'll be with me in paradise. The man didn't need to perform any religious duty. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, if you had done this before the cross, we could have done some things, you could have done some things, we could have taken care of this, but it's too late. He didn't say, you've done too much. You know, the things you did to get crucified, I know that's a pretty heinous crime, and that was too much. I'm sorry. It's too late, too much. You're a lost cause. No. By a simple confession of his lips, by a repenting in his heart, Christ said, you are welcome and will be with me in paradise. And so Luke has shown us the proper response to Jesus is not to weep for him. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. And we should be weeping. But for those who are not responding, and rather than weeping, we should marvel. Marvel at the one. Worship the one. Adore the one that gave his life for his enemies, who offered forgiveness and love instead of hate and revenge. In light of this, we must come to see that Jesus truly is who he claimed to be, God's son, 
and a true man. He did conquer sin and death, and his kingdom will last forever. Whose kingdom are you a part of? Are you still trying to rule your own life? I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to do what I want. Yeah, at times I'll go to church. I do what Jesus says. But when it really meets the road, when the rubber meets the road, I'm calling the shots. Or is Jesus your king? He calls all of us to repent of him, to trust him. And so we can know today that you will one day be with him in paradise. Do you know that? It's not too late. You haven't done too much. Dale Davis tells of a very unique man and a very unique mission. The man was Henry Garricky, and his mission was to fulfill his role as the U.S. Army chaplain to the 21 Nazi leaders who were on trial for their war crimes in Nuremberg. Chaplain Garricky had grown up in Missouri from German family, so he learned German growing up. He became a Lutheran minister, and he had a heart for those in prison, and so his ministry in Missouri often interacted with prisoners. When World War II began, though he was almost 50, he enlisted in the army to be a chaplain. Then he went and served various places, and then when it came time to provide a chaplain for these men, the army realized all the unique qualifications Garricky had. He could speak German. He was Lutheran. He had worked with prisoners before. He seemed the man for the job. However, as his autobiographer or biographer, Tim Townsend, writes, Garricky was terrified by the prospect of being close to the men who tried to take over the world. Would he have to shake their hands? He imagined that simply feeling their breath on his face would be sickening. How could he comfort the Nazis who had caused the world so much heartache? How could he minister to the leaders of a movement that had taken millions of lives? He'd visited the Nazi camps. He'd touched the inside of the walls that still had blood on them. Saw the execution mounds, the barbed wire, the SS barracks, and was sickened by the evidence of the atrocities. He understood what these men had committed. And so Garricky wrestled with this and he prayed and he finally came to the conclusion, I will let the Courts and God take care of justice. I will go and tell them the gospel. And so he would go in and out of their cells and talk to them individually. And he began having services. And the day finally came when those who were sentenced to death had to meet their punishment. They did it one in the morning. And so they awoke the men. They took him up. And the first man who was going to be put to death was Joachim Ribbentrop. Hitler's foreign minister. He was the first one. They led him up the 13 steps, tied his feet and hands and said, do you have any final words? Ribbentrop then responded, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned and he looked at Garricky and said, I'll see you again. And then he died. Now we think, well, yes, Jesus died for people like me, but did Jesus die for men like that? Yes. He died for everyone who would ever repent and believe. So may you come and see, as that dying thief rejoiced 
may we too rejoice at the one who came to die for us. Let's pray. O oh Lord, may we rejoice in you. Lord, may we not, oh yeah, you said you'd forgive. May we see the wonder, the marvel that the God of the universe would forgive the very ones who are putting him on that cross. Lord, may we find our hope, our meaning and joy. Lord, may we weep as we look around so many rejecting the true hope. May we not just weep, may we go forth in love and share the amazing news of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.